2: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. If you liked our Just Who Bike episode and we I think consider ourselves, right Bridget, Just Who oh, Bike. I'm a Who Bike. <laughs> and I used to have a Vespa and I'm a very soon in the future to be a Vespa owner. But we'll, that'll come up soon. Uh you are going to like this episode cuz I think this is taking that whole concept up a notch if you will with a episode I'm so excited to dive into all about women motorcyclists. And this really got on my radar with the recent New York Times article about Ana Carrasco from Spain, who became the first woman to win an individual world championship motorcycle race just last month. That really piqued my curiosity to know more about women's involvement in motorsports, in motorcycling as a leisure activity. And let me tell you, the fascinating stories that we've uncovered today Really blew my mind and I hope, I hope you're all excited. So
3: one thing that I found really, really maybe surprising, but perhaps not that surprising when you break it down is that motorcycle ridership among women is up right now. The total US motorcycle registrations reached 8.4 million in 2014, and that's almost double the number since 2000, according to the Motorcycle Industry Council. Many of those registrations actually belong to women. In 1998, only 8% of motorcycle owners were women. By 2014, the most recent year in which the council did these statistics, female ownership had increased to 14%.
2: Exactly. And the number of female riders rose from 4.3 million in 2003 to 6.7 million in 2012. But the trend here is very clear. The ridership amongst women, motorcyclists, is on the rise. And you know who's paying attention to those numbers? People who sell motorcycles? Ding, ding, ding. There's a capitalist component to this for sure. What I found really interesting is that not only are the traditional makers of motorcycles like Harley-Davidson really embracing this new niche market by creating motorcycles that are a little less bulky, a little lower to the ground, a little more customized, to fit the unique needs of women's bodies and be more inclusive in their design. But there's also a new rise of women-led motorcycling communities. Ah, lady biker gang. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that. And there's a whole new cropping up from a fashion standpoint of motorcycle attire. And also, as you saw with Riri riding in on a motorcycle in the New York Fashion Week runway this past month, that the trend is actually influencing fashion as well.
3: Oh, for sure. First of all, if you've ever seen me on Instagram, you already know I have several motorcycle jackets, so obviously it's something I'm into. (laughs) I love how this is being noticed from a marketing perspective, that companies are saying, oh, women ridership is up? Let's give women stylish motorcycle-inspired apparel. Let's give women bikes that fit their bodies better. And fashion is saying, oh, women are into motorcycles. Let's make this a style trend. I just love that.
2: Yeah. And I feel like you are the
3: target market. I'm definitely the target market.
2: (laughs) I love it. And industry leaders like Harley Davidson have been particularly out front about wooing women. And I was surprised to find out that 10 percent of its dealerships, which still feels like a lot considering that only 8 percent of ridership was women not that long ago, 10% of Harley-Davidson dealerships nationwide are owned by women. So it's no surprise that Harley Davidson really took the lead by unveiling a pair of ultra-low street cruisers that sit closer to the ground, have shorter reach to the handlebars, all the kinds of adaptations that we see in the bicycle market, right, Bridget? Yeah. Like women's bicycles, which by the way, I ride a male. Oh, same. Design, but the handlebars are quite far. Like yeah. there are certain adaptations that they make for women's bikes that maybe not you're much taller than average to women like you and I would be interested in, but is really Interesting to see that those same adjustments that we see in men's versus women's bikes are now happening in motorcycles.
3: Yeah, even though I definitely have always ridden male bikes, I like that these companies aren't just, you know, dyeing a motorcycle pink and saying it's for women, that they're actually thinking about what kind of bike is going to be appropriate for a woman's body and not just pink washing it and saying, here you go, it's a ladies, a ladies version, like it's a razor
2: or something. Right, pink it and shrink it. You know, and I think it's been interesting to see the response, which has been very positive by female riders. Now, one of the questions that I wanted to dive into is what is motivating women to take up ridership, take up motorcycling? Again,
3: going back to our live episode about bicycling, I think it's the very same thing, and that is freedom.
2: Exactly. This, it sounds almost cliche, but life out on the open road with the wind blowing through your hair is the number one answer that we get, surprise, surprise, from men and women. Women tend to ride for the same reasons that men do, but the very masculine or sort of misogynistic culture traditionally found in motorcycle culture, which we're going to explore further in a minute, has been a little unwelcoming to women. So that's part of the reason why women's motorcycling communities are cropping up. And I found two academic published journal studies about the unique sociological and cultural underpinnings to women motorcyclists. I love the study from William Thompson, who published in the journal Deviant Behavior, which sounds like a saucy sociological publication that I should check out, titled Don't Call Me a Biker Chick, Women Motorcyclists Redefining Deviant Identity. What he found, and this is straight out of the abstract of the journal article, was that, quote, the majority of literature on women who participate in the world of motorcycling focuses on females associated with outlaw motorcycle clubs and hardcore bikers. Roles for those women tended to be subservient and demeaning. And this is in stark contrast to the reality of why so many women are riding. Women don't necessarily pick up motorcycling as a cultural hobby or leisure activity because they want to be outlaws and hardcore bikers. He really found that female motorcyclists redefine that deviant identity And actually don't think of themselves as a biker chick. They think of themselves as a woman who likes to ride motorcycles for fun. It's not as integral to the biker sort of identity and culture. Like, they might not be sporting the moto jacket, you know, seven days a week. They might be strapping on the leather just to go for the weekend ride.
3: So it's interesting. So it's not even really about this like, this badass cultural identity or cultural marker of being this, like, rebel without a cause, you know, throwing caution to the wind, that kind of thing. It's just part of their individual identity as women, that I'm a, I'm a woman who does this thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's sort of,
2: like, a more thought of as a leisure activity than a lifestyle choice. Interesting. I, I wonder how that scene with men, I feel like it's probably the different. opposite. Very different. I think... Um, Catherine Roster out of the University of New Mexico, in her journal uh, publication, in the same journal called Girl Power and Participation in Macho Recreation, the case of female Harley riders, she found that women have to sort of mitigate this macho reputation that comes with being a motorcyclist if that doesn't align with their identity, if they don't identify as macho, because obviously... You can be a female, and I'm sort of using air quotes here. Your gender identity can be one thing, and then your gender performance or presentation. You could be a butch, macho woman, right. right? But for women who don't present that way, she found that this sort of idea of girl power represents women's attempts to redefine femininity in a way that embraces the positive aspects of femininity and masculinity and resists negative stereotypes that restrict women's choices of leisure pursuits. Wow, that's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And I almost think when
3: you put that in conjunction with the fact that so many of these women report that they're craving this woman connection, and that's one of the reasons why they ride in groups, I think it really highlights that they're reclaiming, no, riding a motorcycle isn't necessarily about this macho display of masculinity. Actually, it's a way of reconnecting with what it means to be a woman and rethinking what that means to present as a woman
2: and doing that with other women in a community of women motorcyclists. Exactly, which is what I love about the rise of female biker gangs. And I use the term gangs here sort of cautiously because it's a misnomer. And I want to zoom in on one example where this is happening in a mainstream way, which is Marrakech, a major city in Morocco. In a 2014 art exhibition, London-based Moroccan artist Hassan Hajjaj basically chronicled the biker culture of Marrakech in his series called Keshe Angels, his sort of reinterpretation of Hell's Angels, which capture Moroccan girl bike gangs, dishing out smug looks, intimidating sneers, and badassness short of a rock video, which I just thought, you have to see these photos to believe it. They're amazing. I love this so much. This is such a cross-section
3: of things that, like, make me giddy and really happy. What I think is also so fascinating that in a city like Marrakesh, really everybody's riding And right. sort of zooming in on this culture as it pertains to female identity, I think is so, so impactful.
2: Exactly. And in speaking to CNN, you know, Hassan admits they're not real bike gangs, you know, they're not actually gangs. Gangs is a misnomer. But he says these women are his friends who, quote, usually paint henna tattoos on tourists in the main square, but you wouldn't want to run into them in a dark alley. <laughs> they're <laughs> These girls are tough, speak up to five languages, and they're full-time moms who work 10-hour days. So it's just sort of this very feminine ferocity on motorcycles that is an interesting juxtaposition of, Religion meets cultural identity, which is just a good sort of reminder that in a world where we, especially here in the United States, culturally associate sort of tattooed outlaw men wearing black leather jackets rolling deep with their handlebars that like you have to put your hands way above your head to hold on to in like some desert scene out of a movie is not necessarily how the motorcycle culture is developing.
3: Right. This reminds me so much of when I was in sixth grade, finding out my geometry teacher rode a motorcycle. And she was this little old lady. You would never have thought that she was a motorcycle rider. And I remember thinking, like, what does this mean about her life? Because, you know, I was a kid. I assumed she was like bare knuckle boxing after school. I was like, what does this mean? I remember asking her, like, what does this mean? Like, you're a motorcyclist? And she was just like, yeah, I just like it. Wow. It's just for fun, And how it didn't compromise her identity as a, you know, nerdy math teacher. She was still a nerdy math teacher, but motorcycling was just something that she did. And so I love this idea of, you know, the mom who works 10 hour days or the nurse or the painter or whoever,
2: motorcycling just being another aspect of who they are. Exactly. And that's what all the sociological research says. What I found interesting is a couple other arguments that came up in the research besides freedom and wanting that leisure activity is practicality, the benefits from an environmental standpoint, from a gas savings standpoint, being able to speed through LA traffic on your motorcycle. I mean, all of these reasons are both practical and cultural, but you have to overcome. That's the thing. You have to, as a woman, overcome those potentially negative stereotypes that really are based in historical truths about the misogynistic culture surrounding biker gang culture. Well, you know what the seat on the back
3: of a bike is called? Uh, the b**** seat? Ooh, yeah. I mean, I've heard that some male motorcyclists don't even want to ride on the back because they don't want to be considered
2: the b- Well, I've seen plenty of photos in my research for this episode of women riding with their men behind them. Oh! And I once rescued Brad the Boo on a jet ski in a very similar fashion as we were jet skiing around Austin on Lady Bird Lake, and his jet ski seized up and flooded. And I had to save the day. Were you his queen in a shining bathing suit? Yeah. And I was like, like going full throttle on this jet ski on a rescue mission. hold on, baby. I got you. It was (laughs) great. There's a photo on my Instagram about it. So I'm excited to see that motorcycle culture is changing. And when we come back from a quick break, we're going to talk about why that's so important and some of the misogynistic uh, history behind biker culture.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please. Tennessee just sounds perfect, whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip,
2: visit TNVacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And we are talking about the rise of women motorcyclists here in America and across the globe. And what's interesting is that this is a definite moment of transition for the motorcycle industry, because traditionally speaking, not too long ago, just a few years ago, before more manufacturers began heavily targeting women as potential consumers and riders, they were using women in a very different, not so great way when it came to selling their bikes. Well, perhaps
3: unsurprisingly, women and their bodies are just sort of considered to be almost accessories in some ways. There's a really interesting piece by Chris Cope in The Motorcycle Obsession where he talks about what it would be like for his wife if him and his wife went to a motorcycle show where she wanted to look at some of the bikes and test them out. And she goes there and sees these Women, scantily clad, really sort of displaying more like models. How is that supposed to make her feel as a woman who's into motorcycles? And I think I've seen this in so many different facets, things like booth babes at gaming conventions or when they have girls in bikinis at tech conventions, things like that. It just sends the message that women are just there to be accessories or just there to be a sexy body on the back of your bike, not someone who is there to actually appreciate the art of motorcycles.
2: Exactly. And I'm glad to see that there's more press being written that's putting pressure on motorcycle companies and marketing departments of those companies to treat women like consumers and not accoutrement for the bikes, you know. What's also interesting when you look at the misogyny inherent to biker gang culture is that there really are some bike gangs. There really are actual, legit bike gangs that the FBI has on their watch list. And they're called OMGs, which I think is a friendly misnomer. <laughs> but it stands for Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. And this is a real problem. You might remember back in 2015, there was that clash between the Bandidos and the Cossacks, two rival biker gangs in the parking lot of a Twin Peaks restaurant in Waco, Texas. A shootout. Nine people were killed, 18 were injured, and at least 170 were arrested. 170 arrested in a shootout in a parking lot.
3: I was working for MSNBC when this story broke, and I remember when you were covering it, I I thought, this seems like something out of a movie, How is this a real thing. And I guess motorcycle gangs is one of those things where you might think it's not really
2: a thing that's happening in 2017, but it's a thing that's happening. It's so bizarre. I mean, it is important to point out that motorcycle gangs are a very small portion of all the gangs that we have to worry about in the United States right now, but they were much more prominent after World War II when subcultures that promoted nonconformity and outlaw life really came to the forefront. Today, really, these OMGs are only about 2.5% of all gang members here in the United States But interestingly, the FBI considers them a disproportionately large threat. In 2013, in the National Gang Report, the FBI found that 11% of respondents report that OMGs—I can't even say that without laughing—but outlaw motorcycle gangs are the most violent gang type in their area.
3: And as bad as that is, furthermore, biker gangs and white supremacist ideology are increasingly linked— All five of the major white supremacist movements in the U.S., that's neo-Nazis, racist skinheads, the Ku Klux Klan groups, racist prison gangs,
2: and Christian identity groups, have developed noteworthy ties to biker subculture. Exactly. So it's interesting to see what a stark contrast the rise of female ridership with motorcycles and really primarily as a leisure activity for women operates in a very different way, in a more communal sort of based way. Well, I guess gangs are pretty communal too, right? But it's, it's like one is much more inherent to your identity right. as a, I'm an outlaw, I'm a rebel, I'm a, I'm part of a subculture that shares my ideology. Right. That sort of traditional component. And the primary motivator behind women's increase in ridership is much more, this is a leisure activity I do for fun.
3: Well, for women, it's not connected to this, this intense ideology. And I almost feel like these men are giving other riders a bad rap. If motorcycling is inherently entwined with, you know, racist, hateful ideology, as the Anti-Defamation League suggests, what does that say about all the other people, particularly women, who are getting into this because they want to connect with other women and sort of find themselves and, you know, be free on the open road? Yeah,
2: and I would argue that there are plenty of men who pursue motorcycling as a leisure activity as well, but it is interesting that there is a cultural association here to contend with. Whether right. you identify as an outlaw or not, you know, women have to overcome the hyper macho misogynistic history and culture to, to even get into it. And I've seen this firsthand. I think I mentioned this in our nipples episode because they're related that I, in a very weird turn of events, found myself at an East Coast Sturgis rally, the Sturgis biker rallies, which I think are much more prominent and and popular in the West Coast. I don't even know how to describe it, but they're basically these huge parties that center around biker culture. And women's presence at this rally was very sparse, for starters, and primarily the women I saw there appeared to be there for men's entertainment. I'm pretty sure there were some like professional sex workers present, which might explain like the fully nude women that were in like broad daylight stripping down. Wow. Just like taking off their pants and sort of bending over while we were while (laughs) we were getting a drink.
3: I I found How did you find yourself there? Just how did how did Emily find herself there?
2: This was a yuppie hiking trip. Okay. So me and my yuppie friends were like, let's go out into the woods for a hiking trip and our friend had a house in Virginia and so we heard about this whole thing that was happening not too far from the from the house in Virginia and so we're like what do a bunch of young urban professionals want to do today let's go to the Sturgis rally and have a beer and hang out with these motorcyclists as they're doing donuts in the parking lots I had a very sheepish young man come up to me and say um would you show us your
3: uh, wait, he asked you all polite? Yeah, he was very coy. Excuse me, miss? Excuse miss? me, miss? Would you please show us your t- Uh Can I trouble you for your
2: breasts, please? <laughs> and this is, this is in front of all of my friends, all of whom are dudes, right? So I'm with Brad the Boo and like three other guy friends who were, we were all doing this big hiking thing the weekend. And I looked at him and I was like, absolutely not. You know, and he was like, okay, thank you. And he, you know his friends, like, dared him to come up to me. In my mind, he's like, thank you for your time, yes. ma'am. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, save the pandas or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, move along, sir. Move along. And meanwhile, there are women next to me who are pulling down their jean shorts and bending over, perhaps for fun? I don't know. Maybe that's—maybe that they were—they seemed like they were enjoying themselves. Maybe they were making money doing it. I'm not sure. But every time we we drove past— The entrance to the rally, because we had to go on a drive to get out for our hike and stuff, um, and there was, like, a swimming hole nearby that we were swimming in. I was, like, on the back of a truck, and it was like, you needed to hide, because they were stopping cars and asking you to, like, show us your ts as your entry fee to continue on the road. Like, women were just flashing everybody left and right. And here's the thing. That might not be the most appealing biker rally for women who are getting into motorcycling to go to. It's clearly a difference between seeing women as participants and seeing women as commodities.
3: Or accessories or just sort of things that go along with the culture. And it goes back to exactly what that guy was writing about with his, with the example with his wife. Like, if, if all you are seeing is these messages, even if they're subtle, like a girl wearing a bikini at a biker show, or not so subtle, like being asked to show your boobs at a biker event, all of these add up to giving you the signal that you are not fully viewed as a participant in this culture. You are just a, a side decoration. Yeah,
2: it's very dehumanizing. Exactly. You know, it's... I just, I'll never forget that guy sheepishly asking me, excuse me, I have a request for you. Um, Well, here's the good news. To pivot away from my Sturgis Rally experience, which I'm happy to talk more about on the internet, I was also very encouraged to find, and we would really be remiss if we didn't cover this too, that there's a whole other culture of motorcycling, and that is the world of cyclocross or sports. And just as a disclaimer, We're not sports experts here. I don't know, a hockey puck from a baseball, like if my life depended on it, you might score a goal or a touchdown on a soccer field or whatever. I don't know. But what I do know is this championship that Anna Carrasco won is super significant. And we can't say that all biking is inherently tied to that macho Uh, rebel culture, because a huge portion of motorcycle sporting that's happening is much more of an athletic endeavor.
3: What I love about Anna's story is like a lot of folks, she's been on a motorcycle for basically her whole life. She started riding motorcycles when she was just three years old, back when her mechanic father first taught her how to ride. um, She trained seriously over the next couple of years and began to compete internationally around age 16.
2: And I think her victory is so significant and symbolic because, quite frankly, the headlines about women in motorsports hasn't been that great lately. I mean, even The New York Times says that women's participation in top-level motorcycle racing has been spotty. A women-only series only lasted two years before they scrapped the whole idea last season. You know, recently we saw Danica Patrick, who's probably the most famous woman in motorsports, and granted, she's a NASCAR race car driver, not a motorcyclist. Um, You know, despite winning an IndyCar race in 2008, she lost her job fairly recently, just this past month, with Stuart Haas Racing, and her driving future is unclear. So while women have been showing up when it comes to motorcycling in particular, there has not been a lot of good headlines lately.
3: Totally. Well, going back to Anna, that's why I think her win was so important because it really marked a win not just for her, but for women motorcyclists everywhere. When talking about her win, she said, we worked really hard to get here and that we, she's referring to, isn't just it's her, it's her father who taught her to ride, but it's also this community of women everywhere who ride motorcycles. And I just love highlighting that Despite all of the negative headlines that women have been getting in this kind, in these kinds of arenas, going back to seeing a woman really, you know, excel and having that be a victory for all women on two wheels <laughs> or whatever. Don't, I shouldn't make sports jokes. I love it.
2: I love it. Well, on two electric motorized oh, yeah, wheels, two electric Ooh. wheels. And I think it's important to note that there are plenty of young women and girls getting into motocross or moto sports, however you want to call it. You know, basically hopping on motorcycles at much younger ages. And though I wasn't able to find, like, hard numbers on how many young girls are participating in those kinds of leagues, I did find that this sport is especially big amongst young kids in the American South and Australia and the U.K.,
3: that doesn't surprise me at all. Growing up in the South, I've definitely seen some really, really cute little girls on their on their little bikes with their little helmets. It's the cutest thing. If you've ever seen a picture of a little kid on a like a tiny kid's <laughs> motocross bike, it's the cutest thing you'll Does, ever see. Doesn't
2: that like instantly make you think like you're gonna break your neck? Like get off the freaking motorcycle? Because my mom, I think, forbid me from ever hopping on a motorcycle. It was like this is not a thing. Because
3: like, her mom's a medical professional, <laughs> so true. she knows it's probably not the safest thing in the world.
2: But But again, that shouldn't prevent us from having girls be involved as much as boys. Exactly. Interesting. All right. When we come back from a quick break, I want to wrap this up with a look backwards. We know that women are a big part of the future of the motorcycling industry here in the United States and well beyond. And we want to look at a few notable women from history who were pioneers on two wheels. We'll be right back.
0: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands
2: We're back. And there are two women out of many notable women motorcyclists in history that we have to talk about. And the first is Bessie Stringfield.
3: Bessie Stringfield. I I had never heard of her before researching this episode, but she's my new idol. She's amazing. In 1930, at age 19, she became the first black woman to ride across the United States by herself. Before the interstate system was developed, road travel was really this, like, scary thing. It was a lot more complicated than you might think of now because the interstate travel wasn't sort of situated yet. And she did this by herself. But when she came back to Florida, this woman who had, you know, ridden all over the United States found herself getting run off the roads because she was a black woman on a motorcycle, which is just awful.
2: Despite the fact that the roads were treacherous from a technical standpoint because she was such a skilled driver, that was one challenge that she was able to manage. But beyond that, this is 1930, when she made her first cross-country solo trek. So she faced sort of a double danger in terms of navigating Jim Crow-era discrimination and overt racism.
3: Exactly. I can only imagine, like, what she was up against, and also doing this by herself. I can only imagine. After her first trip across the United States, she would go on to complete that journey seven more times, eventually visiting all 48 of the contiguous states in the United States— Plus, Europe, Brazil, and Haiti. This is the coolest thing I've ever heard. One of her favorite games was tossing a penny onto a map and traveling wherever it landed.
2: I love that. And this is a woman who, like, by the time World War II rolled around, she's a fixture on the motorcycle circuit. She's a famous female motorcyclist, and she spent her life sort of making her hobby, making this leisure activity her living.
3: Yeah, she said that she would fund her trips by doing motorcycle tricks at local carnivals, <laughs> and that's how she would get money to go on these amazing motorcycle journeys.
2: Yeah, and get money to own the 27 Harley Davidsons that she owned over the course of her lifetime. She then went on to work with the Army as a civilian motorcycle dispatch rider, which is just a whole other level of badassery for this woman. Unsurprisingly, she was the only woman in her unit at the time, and she ended up affixing an army crest to the front of her blue Harley 61. But despite her service, really, to the nation and her fame uh, as such a skilled and talented motorcyclist, in the 1950s, when Stringfield made her home in Miami, where she became a registered nurse and founded the Iron Horse Motorcycle Club... Her community wasn't initially all that welcoming of her, were they? Uh, that's to say the least of it.
3: Basically, when she was trying to ride around, she was pulled over by the police that said, blank, insert slur here, women are not allowed to ride motorcycles. Which, again, if you had spent your life pouring all of yourself into this craft, finding ways to finance this craft through your ability to ride motorcycles, being told by your own community that that's not okay
2: is Horrifying. But, by your community, like armed police members. Exactly, yeah, right.
3: But rather than quit, what she did was arrange a meeting with the chief of police, took him to a local park, and proved her motorcycle skills firsthand. She was never targeted by police again after that demonstration.
2: And instead, she ended up performing in races, earning the nickname the Motorcycle Queen of Miami. After winning one race disguised as a man, she took off her helmet to claim the prize and was subsequently refused. How badass is this woman? So badass. So despite all the BS, sexist, racist, you know, intense, life-threatening obstacles that were put in her path, she was eventually inducted into the Motorcycle Hall of Fame in 2002. And in June 2016, the Miami Times reported that 200 female riders would travel to Stringfield, South Florida home To honor the late pioneer.
3: One last thing about her that I love, it's sort of maybe a little bit reckless, but God, it's so badass. Doctors advised her to stop riding because of a heart condition. And she said, I told him, if I don't ride, I won't live long. And so I never did quit.
2: Stringfield died in 1993 at age 82, and her badass legacy lives on to this day. It rides on to this day. (laughs) Vroom, vroom. (laughs) I'm loving how much you are embracing puns right now. Uh, Okay, one other incredible woman motorcycle badass we have to talk about is named Elspeth Beard. Now, she is a more modern take on a badass motorcycle woman. And she became the first English woman to ride a motorcycle across the world in 1982, which I just think is like such an incredibly audacious goal to even vocalize, much less succeed in achieving. Because think about it, it's before smartphones, navigation, all that. Yeah, before the internet, really. Well, mainstreaming of the internet, I guess like pseudo-email was available, then. So at age 24, Elspeth had just finished the first three years of her architectural studies and saved about a 1,000 pounds, or 1,900 American dollars, working behind the bar at her local pub, making her the most English woman ever. This is exactly what my experience studying in London was like. And she started her journey in New York after buying uh, a ticket for her and the bike to go one way to the States. From the Big Apple, she went up to Canada, down to Mexico, all the way to L.A., where she then shipped the bike to Sydney, but stopped off to see New Zealand on foot while the bike was in transit. She ended up in the—like, this is making her sound like all of my English friends who did this in their early 20s. like, bouncing around from place to
3: place to place and winding up places. Yeah,
2: which I think is something we Americans could learn a thing or two about. She ended up spending seven months in Sydney working in an architectural practice because she ran out of money. What is her life? I know. So she's—you know, she's gaining experience in her professional domain and replenishing her diminished funds— And while she rode all over Australia, she had her first big accident that thankfully left her with no broken bones, but a bad concussion that left her in the hospital for two weeks before continuing on her journey.
3: Later on in Singapore, she actually ended up having a disaster of a different kind when all of her valuables, including her passport and her visa, were stolen. And if you've ever been traveling abroad, you know that's terrifying. She would then go back to London where she had been away for three years When she got back to London, she'd added 48,000 miles to her R60s odometer, so now it read 88,000. She stripped away and completely rebuilt her engine and herself, and the bike is actually still in working order today, which, when you think about it, is pretty freaking impressive.
2: And what's even more impressive to me is that this 24-year-old who took three years to do something insanely audacious, like ride her motorcycle around the globe, returns to London, completes her architectural studies, spends seven years renovating a water tower into a architecturally fascinating home of her own, where she then raises her own son while working full-time and establishing her own architectural practice. Yeah,
3: so what I love about that is you could take time off to do this incredibly ambitious, motor- like dangerous motorcycle journey on your own as a woman across these different countries, come back and just go right back to crushing it architecture <laughs> and be a famous architect that people make documentaries about.
2: Exactly. She's award-winning. She's got two Japanese TV documentaries devoted to her life and work. And I just... I just love how, like, her experience with motorcycling is just part and parcel of and indicative of her adventurous, fearless spirit. I just am so impressed with the women who ride motorcycles that I'm now tempted to completely disobey my mother's orders and dare to do that myself someday. But first, we want to hear from you, Sminty listeners. Do you ride out on the open road? How do you identify with your motorcycle um, hobby? Or is it a leisure activity or is it a lifestyle to you? And if you have always wanted to get into motorcycling but haven't, why? Why has that held you back? Let's keep this conversation going. You can always find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. You can find us on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And as always, we love getting your emails at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. To start planning your trip, visit TNVacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect.
3: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people.